WNYC is teaming up with NPR to bring you a new daily podcast, Consider This. We'll bring you the biggest news stories and what's happening in our community to help you make sense of the day. Subscribe to Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear The Toughest Indian in the World by Sherman Alexie, which was published in The New Yorker in June of 1999. We all know that nostalgia is dangerous, but I remember those days with a clear conscience. We live in different days now, and there aren't as many Indian hitchhikers as there used to be. The story was chosen by David Means, who's published four story collections. His first novel, Histopia, was published earlier this year. Hi, David. Hey, Deborah. So last time you were on the podcast, you read a story by Raymond Carver. What made you pick Sherman Alexie this time? Uh, I'm not sure. I think it was, um, I felt for some reason, I suddenly felt that Sherman Alexie was being neglected a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he's a writer who goes way beyond the category of a Native American writer and is simply just a great storyteller and story writer. And I felt this story had some um, complexity that was that lent itself to discussion, I think, at some mm-hmm. level. But mm-hmm. Did you read it when it first came out? I think I read it in book form mm-hmm. um, years ago, and occasionally I've uh, brought it in front of my class to teach. Um, so I've looked at it over the years again and again. Yeah. Yeah. What is it like to teach it? You know, the, the students really, really love it. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they're they a little perplexed by the ending and they're not sure what to say, but um, they, they tend to embrace it. Yeah, it's funny. I, when I, when I read it for the, when I read it again for this podcast, I thought, what are we going to say? Because <laughs> it is this sort of formed thing. Yeah. You have to kind of break into its shell to talk about it. It has this incredible f- structure that only a story can have. It, it, it spins around and around personal information, personal narrative, and, um, and then it gets to the pivotal action at the very end. I say this again and again. You're, you're sort of retroactively cast back at the, onto the earlier parts of the story. Um, so it kind of forms a, a chemical reaction. Mm-hmm. You have to really sort of go back and think about exactly. how he leads you to this point. You get to the end and you have to start again. Yes, yeah, exactly. Very circular. Well, well, maybe we should just dive right in with it then. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll talk some more after the reading. Okay. And now here's David Means reading The Toughest Indian in the World by Sherman Alexie. The Toughest Indian in the World. Being a Spokane Indian, I only pick up Indian hitchhikers. I learned this particular ceremony from my father, a Coeur d'Alene, who always stopped for those 20th century Aboriginal nomads who refused to believe the salmon were gone. I don't know what they believe in exactly, but they wore hope like a bright shirt. My father never taught me about hope. From an early age, I was told that our salmon would never come back. And though such lessons may seem cruel, I learned to cover my heart in a crowd of white people. They'll kill you if they get the chance, my father said. Love you or hate you, white people will shoot you in the heart. Even after all these years, they still smell the salmon on you 
the dead salmon, and that will make white people dangerous. All of us, Indian and white, are haunted by salmon. When I was a boy, I leaned over the edge of one dam or another, perhaps Long Lake or Little Falls, or the great gray dragon known as the Grand Coulee, and watched the ghosts of the salmon rise from the water to the sky and become constellations. Believe me, for most Indians, stars are nothing more than white tombstones scattered across a dark graveyard. But the Indian hitchhikers my father picked up refused to admit the existence of sky, let alone the possibility that salmon might be stars. They were common people who believed only in the thumb and the foot. My father envied those simple Indian hitchhikers. He wanted to change their minds about salmon. He wanted to break open their hearts and see the future in their blood because he loved them. Driving along one highway or another, my father would point out a hitchhiker standing beside the road a mile or two in the distance. Indian, he would say, and he was never wrong. Though I could never tell if that distant figure was male or female, let alone Indian or not. If the distant figure happened to be white, my father would drive by without comment. That was how I learned to be silent in the presence of white people. The silence is not about hate or pain or fear. Indians just like to believe that white people will vanish, perhaps explode into smoke, if they are ignored enough times. Perhaps a thousand white families are still waiting for their sons and daughters to return home and can't even recognize them when they float back as morning fog. Indian, my father would say again as we approached one of those dream-filled hitchhikers. Hell, those hitchhikers' faces grew red and puffy with the weight of their dreams. We better stop, my mother would say from the passenger seat. She was one of those Spokane women who always wore a purple bandana tied tightly around their heads. These days, her bandana is usually red. There are reasons, motives, traditions behind the choice of color, but my mother keeps them secret. Make room, my father would say to my siblings and me as we sat on the floor in the cavernous passenger area of our blue van. We sat on carpet samples because my father had torn out the seats in a sober rage not long after he bought the van from a crazy white man. I have three brothers and three sisters now. Back then I had four of each. I missed one of the funerals and cried myself sick during the other one. Make room, my father would say again. And he said everything twice. And only then would we scramble to make space for the Indian hitchhiker. Of course, it was easy enough to make room for one hitchhiker, but Indians usually traveled in packs. Once or twice, we picked up entire all-Indian basketball teams, along with our coaches, girlfriends, and cousins. Fifteen, twenty Indian strangers squeezed into the back of a blue van with nine wide-eyed Indian kids. Back in those days, I loved the smell of Indians, and of Indian hitchhikers in particular. They were usually in some stage of drunkenness, often in need of soap and towel, and always ready to sing. Oh, the songs! Indian blues bellowed at the highest volumes. We called them 49s, those cross-cultural songs that combined Indian lyrics and rhythm with country and western and blues melodies. It seemed that every Indian knew all the lyrics to every Hank Williams song ever recorded. Hank was our Jesus. Patsy Cline was our Madonna. And Freddie Fender, George Jones, Conway Twitty, 
Loretta Lynn, Tammy Wynette, Charlie Pride, Ronnie Millsap, Tanya Tucker, Marty Robbins, Johnny Horton, Donna Fargo, and Charlie Rich were our disciples. We all know that nostalgia is dangerous, but I remember those days with a clear conscience. We live in different days now, and there aren't as many Indian hitchhikers as there used to be. Today, I drive my own car, a 1998 Toyota Camry, the best-selling automobile in the United States, and therefore, the one most often stolen. Consumer Reports has named it the most reliable family sedan for 16 years running, and I believe them. With my Camry, I pick up three or four Indian hitchhikers a week, mostly men. They're usually headed home, back to their reservations or somewhere close to their reservations. Indians hardly ever travel in a straight line. So a Crow Indian might hitchhike west when his reservation is back east in Montana. He has some people to see in Seattle, he might explain if I ever asked him. But I never ask Indians their reasons for hitchhiking. They were Indian, walking, raising a thumb, and I was there to pick them up. At the newspaper where I work, my fellow reporters think I'm crazy to pick up hitchhikers. They're all white and never stop to pick up anybody, let alone an Indian. After all, we're the ones who write the stories and headlines. Hitchhiker kills husband and wife. Missing girl's body found. Rapist strikes again. If I really tried, maybe I could explain to them why I pick up any Indian, but who wants to try? Instead, if they ask, I just give them a smile and turn back to my computer. My coworkers smile back and laugh loudly. They're always laughing loudly at me, at one another, at themselves, at goofy typos in the newspaper, at the idea of hitchhikers. I dated one of them for a few months, Cindy. She covered the local courts, speeding tickets and divorces, drunk driving and embezzlement. Cindy firmly believed in the who, what, where, when, why, and how of journalism. In daily conversation, she talked like she was writing the lead of her latest story. Hell, she talked like that in bed. How does that feel, I would ask, quite possibly becoming the only Indian man who has ever asked that question? I love it when you touch me there, she would answer. But it would help if you rubbed it about 30% lighter and with your thumb instead of your middle finger. And could you maybe turn the radio to a different station? KYZY would be good. I feel like soft jazz would work better for me right now. A minor chord, C or a G flat, something like that. Okay, honey? During lovemaking, I would get so exhausted by the size of her vocabulary that I would fall asleep before my orgasm, continue pumping away as if I were awake, and then regain consciousness with a sudden start when I finally did come, more out of reflux than passion. Don't get me wrong. Cindy was a good one, cute and smart, funny as hell, a good catch no matter how you define it. But she was also one of those white women who only date brown-skinned guys. Indians like me, black dudes, Mexicans, even a few Iranians. I started to feel like a trophy or like one of those entries in a personal ad. I asked Cindy why she never dated pale boys. White guys bore me, she said. All they want to talk about is their fathers. What do brown guys talk about, I asked her. Their mothers, she said and laughed, then promptly left me for a public defender who 
who was half Japanese and half African, a combination that left Cindy dizzy with the interracial possibilities. Since Cindy, I haven't dated anyone. I live in my studio apartment with the ghosts of two dogs, Felix and Oscar, and a laptop computer stuffed with bad poems, the aborted halves of three novels, and some three-paragraph personality pieces I wrote for the newspaper. I'm a features writer, and an Indian at that, so I get all the shit jobs. Not the dangerous shit jobs or the monotonous shit jobs. No, I get to write the articles designed to please the eye, ear, and heart. And there is no journalism more soul-endangering to write than journalism that aims to please. So it was with reluctance that I hopped into my car last week and headed down Highway 2 to write some damn pleasant story about some damn pleasant people. Then I saw the Indian hitchhiker standing beside the road. He looked the way Indian hitchhikers usually look. Long, straggly black hair, brown eyes and skin, missing a couple of teeth, bad complexion, crooked nose that had been broken more than once, big, misshapen ears, a few whiskers masquerading as a mustache. Even before he climbed into my car, I could tell he was tough. He had some serious muscles that threatened to rip through his blue jeans and denim jacket. When he was in the car, I could see his hands up close, and they told the whole story. His fingers were twisted into weird shapes, and his knuckles were covered with layers of scar tissue. Geez, I said, you're a fighter, ain't you? The hitchhiker looked down at his hands, flexed them into fists. I could tell it hurt him to do that. Yeah, he said. I pulled back onto the highway, looking over my shoulder to check my blind spot. What tribe are you, I asked him. Lumi, he said. What about you? Spokane. I know some Spokane. haven't seen them in a long time. He clutched his backpack in his lap like he didn't want to let it go for nothing. He reached inside a pocket and pulled out a piece of deer jerky. I recognized it by the smell. Want some? He asked, sure. It had been a long time since I'd eaten jerky. The salt, the gamey taste. I felt as Indian as Indian gets, driving down the road in a fast car, chewing on jerky, talking to an indigenous fighter. Where you headed? I asked. Home, back to the res. I nodded my head as I passed a big truck. The driver gave us a smile as we went by. I tooted the horn. Big trucks said the fighter. I haven't lived on my reservation for years, but I live in Spokane, which is only an hour's drive from the res. Still, I hardly ever go there. I don't know why not. I don't think about it much, I guess, but my mom and dad still live in the same house where I grew up. My brothers and sisters, too. The ghosts of my two dead siblings share an apartment in a converted high school. Believe me, it's just a local call from Spokane to the res, so I talk to all of them once or twice a week. Smoke signals courtesy of U.S. West Communications. Sometimes they call me up to talk about the stories they've seen that I write for the newspaper. Pet pigs and support groups and science fairs. Once in a while, I used to fill in for the obituary writer when she was sick. Then she died, and I had to write her obituary. How far are you going? asked the fighter, meaning how much closer was he going to get to his reservation than he was now. Up to Wanachi, I said. I've got some people to interview there. Interview? What for? I'm a reporter. I work for the newspaper. No, said the fighter. 
looking at me like I was stupid for thinking he was stupid. I mean, what's the story about? Oh, not much. There's two sets of twins who work for the fire department, human interest stuff, you know? Two sets of twins, and yet, that's weird. He offered me more deer jerky, but I was too thirsty for the salty meat, so I offered him a Pepsi instead. It's a little-known fact that Indians can be broken up into two distinct groups, Pepsi tribes and Coke tribes. Don't mind if I do, he said. He was obviously a member of a Pepsi tribe. They're in the cooler on the back seat, I said. Grab me one, too. He maneuvered his backpack carefully and found room enough to reach into the back seat for the soda pop. He opened my can first and handed it to me. I took a big mouthful and hiccuped loudly. That always happens to me when I drink cold things, he said. We sipped slowly after that. I kept my eyes on the road while he stared out his window into the wheat fields. We were quiet for many miles. Who do you fight? I asked as we passed through another anonymous small town. Mostly Indians, he said. Money fights, you know. I go from res to res, fighting the best they have. Winner takes all. Geez, I never heard of that. Yeah, I guess it's illegal. He rubbed his hands together. I could see fresh wounds. Man, I said, those fights must be rough. The fighter stared out the window. I watched him for a little too long and almost drove off the road. Car horns sounded all around us. Geez, the fighter said. Close one, Inyot. Close enough, I said. He pulled his backpack closer to him, using it as a barrier between his chest and dashboard, an Indian hitchhiker's version of a passenger side airbag. Who'd you fight last, I asked, trying to concentrate on the road. Some flathead kid, he said, in our lee. He was supposed to be the toughest Indian in the world. Was he? Nah. No way. Wasn't even close. Wasn't even tougher than me. He told me how big the flathead kid was, way over six feet tall and 200 and some pounds. Big buck Indian. Had hands as big as this and arms as big as that. Had a chin like a damn buffalo. The fighter told me that he hit the flathead kid harder than he had ever hit anybody before. I hit him like he was a white man, the fighter said. I hit him like he was two or three white men rolled into one. But the flathead kid would not go down, even though his face swelled up so bad he looked like the elephant man. There was no referee, no judge, no bell to signal the end of the round. The winner was the Indian still standing, punch after punch, man, and the kid would not go down. I was so tired after a while, said the fighter, that I just took a step back and watched the kid. He stood there with his arms down, swaying from side to side like some toy, you know? Head bobbing on his neck, like there was no bone at all. You couldn't even see his eyes no more. He was messed up. What'd you do, I asked. Ah, hell, I couldn't fight him no more. That kid was planning to die before he ever went down. So I just sat on the ground while they counted me out. Dumb, flathead kid didn't even know what was happening. I just sat on the ground while they raised his hand. While all the winners collected their money and all the losers cussed me out, I just sat there, man. Jeez, I said. What happened next? Not much. I sat there until everybody was gone. 
Then I stood up and headed for home. I'm tired of this shit. I just want to go home for a while. I got enough money to last me a long time. I'm a rich Indian, you hear? I'm a rich Indian. The fighter finished his Pepsi with one swallow, rolled down his window, and pitched the can out. I almost protested but decided against it. I kept my empty can wedged between my legs. That's a hell of a story, I said. Ain't no story, he said. It's what happened. Jeez, I said. You would have been a warrior in the old days, innit? You? you would have been a killer. You would have stolen everybody's goddamn horses. That would have been you. You would have been it. I was excited. I wanted the fighter to know how much I thought of him. He didn't even look at me. A killer, he said. Sure. We didn't talk much after that. I pulled into Wanachi just before sundown, and the fighter seemed happy to be leaving me. Thanks for the ride, cousin, he said as he climbed out. Indians always call each other cousin, especially if they're strangers. Wait, I said. He looked at me, waiting impatiently. I wanted to know if he had a place to sleep that night. It was supposed to get cold. There was a mountain range between Wenatchee and his reservation. Big mountains that used to be volcanoes. Big mountains that were still volcanoes. It could all blow up at any time. We wrote about it once for the newspaper. Things can change so quickly. So many emergencies and disasters that we can barely keep track. I wanted to tell him how much I cared about my job, even if I had to write about small-town firemen. I wanted to tell the fighter that I always picked up every Indian hitchhiker, young and old, men and women. Believe me, I pick them up and get them all a little closer to home, even if I can't get them all the way. I wanted to tell him that the night sky was a graveyard. I wanted to know if he was the toughest Indian in the world. It's late, I finally said. You can crash with me if you want. He studied my face and then looked down the long road towards his reservation. Okay, he said. That sounds good. We got a room at the Pony Soldier Motel and both of us laughed at the irony of it all. Inside the room, in a generic watercolor hanging above the bed, the U.S. Cavalry was kicking the crap out of a band of renegade Indians. What tribe do you think they are? I asked the fighter. All of them, he said. The fighter crashed on the floor while I curled up in the uncomfortable bed. I couldn't sleep for the longest time. I listened to the fighter talk in his sleep. I stared up at the water-stained ceiling. I don't know what time it was when I finally drifted off, and I don't know what time it was when the fighter got into bed with me. He was naked, and his penis was hard. I could feel it press against my back as he snuggled up close to me, reached inside my underwear, and took my penis in his hand. Neither of us said a word. He just continued to stroke me as he rubbed himself against my back. That went on for a long time. I had never been that close to another man, but the fighter's calloused fingers felt better than I would have imagined if I had ever allowed myself to imagine such things. This isn't working, he whispered. I can't come. Without thinking, I reached around and took the fighter's penis in my hand. He was surprisingly small. No, he said. 
I want to be inside you. I don't know, I said. I've never done this before. It's okay, he said. I'll be careful. I have rubbers. Without waiting for my answer, he released me and got up from the bed. I turned to look at him. He was beautiful and scarred. So much brown skin marked with bruises, badly healed wounds, and tattoos. His long black hair was unbraided and hung down to his thin waist. My slacks and dress shirts were carefully folded and draped over the chair near the window. My shoes were sitting on the table. Blue light filled the room. The fighter bent down to his pack and searched for his condoms. For reasons I could not explain then and cannot explain now, I kicked off my underwear and rolled over on my stomach. I could not see him, but I could hear him breathing heavily as he found the condoms, tore open the package, and rolled one over his penis. He crawled into bed between my legs and slid a pillow beneath my belly. Are you ready? He asked. I'm not gay, I said. Sure, he said as he pushed himself into me. He was small, but it hurt more than I expected, and I knew I would be sore for days afterward. But I wanted him to save me. He didn't say anything. He just pumped into me for a few minutes, came with a loud sigh, and then pulled out. Believe me, I wanted him to save me. I quickly rolled off the bed and went into the bathroom. I locked the door behind me and stood there in the dark. I smelled like salmon. Hey, the fighter said through the door. Are you okay? Yes, I said, I'm fine. A long silence. Hey, he said, would you mind if I slept in the bed with you? I had no answer to that. Listen, I said, that flathead boy you fought, you know, the one you really beat up, the one who wouldn't fall down, in my mind, I could see the fighter pummeling that boy, punch after punch. The boy too beaten to fight back, but too strong to fall down. Yeah, what about him? Asked the fighter. What was his name? His name? Yeah, his name. Elmer or something or other. Did he have an Indian name? I have no idea. How the hell would I know that? I stood there in the dark for a long time. I was chilled. I wanted to get into bed and fall asleep. Hey, I said, I think, I think maybe, well, I think you should leave now. Yeah, said the fighter. He was not surprised. I could hear him softly singing as he dressed and stuffed all of his belongings into his pack. I couldn't tell what he was singing, but I wanted to know. I opened the bathroom door just as he was opening the door to leave. He stopped, looked back at me, and smiled. Hey, tough guy, he said. You were good. The fighter walked out the door then, leaving it open, and walked away. I stood in the doorway and watched him continue as he walked down the highway past the city limits. I watched him rise from the earth to sky and become a new constellation closed the door and wondered what was going to happen next. Feeling uncomfortable and cold, I went back into the bathroom. I ran the shower with the hottest water possible. I stared at myself in the mirror. Steam quickly filled the room. 
I threw a few shadow punches. Feeling stronger, I got in the shower and searched my body for changes. A middle-aged man needs to look for tumors. I dried myself with a towel too small for the job, then I crawled naked into bed. I wondered if I was a warrior in this life and if I had been a warrior in a previous life. Lonely and laughing, I fell asleep. I didn't dream at all, not one bit. Or perhaps I did dream, but I can't remember any of it. Instead, I woke early the next morning before sunrise and went out into the world. I walked past my car. I stepped onto the pavement, still warm from the previous day's sun. I started walking. In bare feet, I traveled up river towards the place where I was born and will someday die. Believe me, at that moment, if you had broken open my heart, you could have looked inside and seen the thin white skeletons of a thousand salmon. That was David Means reading The Toughest Indian in the World by Sherman Alexie. The story appeared in The New Yorker in June of 1999 and was included in Alexie's collection, The Toughest Indian in the World, which was published by Atlantic Monthly Press in 2000. David, one of the first things I felt on rereading this story this week was what a dismal time <laughs> to be reading stories about non-white cultures in America. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there's that line at the beginning where the, the, the father tells his son, you know, they'll kill you if they get the chance. You know, yeah. love you or hate you, white people will shoot you in the heart. Yeah. And I suppose that that's a reality that Native American or Indian cultures have been obviously living with since white people came <laughs> here. Yeah. But also to, to see it expressed in that way um, this week. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, the thing I found refreshing or, uh, you know, when I was reading the story and sort of getting a feel for it again, uh, maybe even refreshing isn't the word. The thing that touched me was that a story or a piece of literature can um, implicate you into the culture. It can it can actually make you become, at least temporarily, part of something that you're not. And I felt like, even at that point in the story where we're, uh, you know, where the father's lecturing the son and giving him this uh, acute, sharp information that he'll carry with him for the rest of his life. Yeah. Even at that point, I felt like um, I was being told something. I was mm -hmm. being uh, about, about whiteness, mm -hmm. about being white and what it means. Uh, that you are a, in the, in the sort of dynamic of, of a person's life, just by being a white, you are projecting something that is fearful. Mm -hmm. um, that triggers fear, yeah. 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 That you're, no matter what, you're playing a role. He also opens the story with that image of, of these Indian hitchhikers who who wear hope like, like a bright shirt, yeah. You know who who don't want to believe that the salmon are gone and the salmon obviously comes back throughout the story. Um, what is that salmon? Is it a, is it a metaphor? Is it a symbol for Pacific Northwest culture? I mean, uh, yeah. Quite literally, salmon's been the salmon had been depleted. Yeah. By by white fishing. Yeah. <laughs> Overfishing. Yeah. Well, I but. think I think it ends up becoming and that's sort of what I was saying about Im implicating you and drawing you into something yeah. that's beyond your own culture. You 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 only feel uh what salmon means and what it is 
to him. It is a deep symbol of not just nature, but of something even more than that, because it, it in the story ends with that image, at least it did in the original, in, in the book version that Sherman Alexi published, there was this image of him tearing himself open and, and the salmon were inside him. Yeah, is that both, in, it's a, it, in it, New York? It's okay. both versions. Okay, yeah. I, I couldn't but remember from here. It, what's <laughs> yes. inside him is the, yeah. the skeletons the ske- of the salmon, yeah. not, not yeah. actual living salmon, but they're yeah. skeletons, they're bones. Yeah, that's, and, and it's, but it's taken to this mythic level yeah. of, um, you know, he is a constellation. He is something beyond himself. He is a salmon. He is a salmon, and um, which kind of sounds like my mother is a fish, which reminds <laughs> me of Faulkner. But um, yeah, it's a, it's it's a perplexing mystery how 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 you interpret the ending of, that, of this story. Um, I think it ties in with the with the sex at the end, with the need for communication. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm jumping to the end, but I see yeah. that I see that scene as a form of touch being a way of communicating, a, a form of dialogue. I'm kind of working on a theory that in all, and this is a preposterous theory, that in all of literature, uh, sex scenes are really um, simply modes of communication and dialogue between the two characters. Yeah. So I kind of look at that scene as a, a way of talking, of, of learning a new way of speech, and then he walks out and becomes you know, even he becomes mythic. Mm-hmm. Um, they both do, yeah. Well, uh, so let's go to that sex scene. Do you see it coming? I feel the I feel this sense of disequilibrium in the character. He, the the scene with Cindy, and the the fact that Cindy wants to map things out for him and wants to tell him what to do, what's good and what's bad. And I feel that he's kind of in between several worlds sexually and, and then um, also with his identity. He's, he's hovering and he's looking for a place to, uh, to stand. So um, I didn't find it surprising that the sex yeah. scene happened. Yeah. Well, we have these two characters. We have this sort of citified Indian who, who never goes back to the reservation, who works with all white people, dates white women. Um, and then we have this, this other Indian who at least for the narrator, epitomizes sort of a real Indian, you know? Yeah. He's yeah. he's going around from reservation to reservation. He's tough. He's fighting. He's pulling out his deer jerky. You know? <laughs> um, he's in the Pepsi tribe. Yes, um, yeah. He's the toughest Indian in the know, world. So he's, even for the narrator, is is a sort of symbol of something. And and I suppose, you know, the, the narrator in a way complains about Cindy typecasting him, you yeah. know, he's just another brown man or he's, you know, and then about the people at the newspaper typecasting him and so on. But when he looks at this fighter, is that not what he's doing? He's sort of fetishizing. I, I think he is. I think we all do that at some level, maybe, um, you know, at some primal whatever level, we're all um, constantly looking for some new mask to put on or identity. But I think with in, with this character, it's um, partially about masculinity. And Cindy is the one that uh, is going around, messing around with different identity types and seeing what alchemical, alchemical things happen, you know. And, 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 he, and Alexei makes that clear. But this character is sort of hovering, again, hovering between different, uh, between the white world, but he's hovering in, and the res. That's sort of Alexei's 
uh, landscape. Yeah. Um, in the book version of this book, which is slightly different, he plays a little more with the um, giving you the sense that he this character is um, intentionally putting on the Indian identity to connect with the with the fighter guy. Well, he's very he's very drawn. You know, I don't know if it's a physical attraction, sexual attraction, but he's very, very drawn to this man. He can't take his eyes off him. He drives off the road because he can't stop looking at him. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he's fascinated. Perhaps he doesn't know why. Yeah, I don't. I don't think he does. Uh, I think he's attracted. You know, because it's mentioned a few times the the sort of beauty of the scars mm-hmm. and the beauty of the uh, of, of 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 the damage that's been done. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's drawn to it. He doesn't understand why. Um, which is to me the mystery of that literature exposes. You know, it can't be explained exactly yeah. why one person comes into our life, even as a hitchhiker. And, and really does this sort of chemical thing that changes everything. Mm-hmm. Maybe not forever, but at least for the night, you know, it's like yeah. that. Well, it also begs the question, you know, is this, the salmon isn't a real salmon. It's not a salmon, you know, that's swimming that you might catch and eat. Is this fighter a real Indian? Is he, is he a symbol? Is it something that, he, you know, he wants to, in a sense, be, be taken by, possessed by? Well, he's stuck in a short story. Yeah. And and, and the nature of a, the, a story of this length is that um, the symbols, you know, everything is symbolic at some level. It's almost like he can't, you, you can't see him as anything but something symbolic in the context of everything yeah. that happens. Yeah. There, there's that line that he has during when, you know, they're having sex. He says, I'm not gay. I'm not, yeah. you know, but I wanted him to save me. And yeah. he says it twice. Yeah. I wanted him to save me. Yeah. Um, what do you think saving means? Well, I just read that as the way we all want to be saved mm-hmm. without getting corny here. But yeah. I mean, I yeah. just read that as, you know, he's lonely, he's isolated, uh, even in the context of the hotel room, you know, it, lo- hotel rooms are isolated and they're, they're isolating and they're lonely yeah. and he just... And I, I think there's a very complicated thing going on with the saying, I am, I'm not gay. You know, it's yeah. like um, that's probably been said a lot. In, that, in exactly that <laughs> in situation. exactly <laughs> that situation. <laughs> and, and it kind of makes me think that, you know, um, language just can't do justice to the complexity of the human, yeah. of, of human yeah. behavior. It's like, um, well, you are gay, at least tonight you are. I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how to yeah. address that. But yeah. um I mean the 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 um the sex itself is quite one-sided. It is. Um, <laughs> he makes a point of uh, pointing out that this, you know, tough guy, this fighter guy is very small. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, says yeah. it twice. Yeah. Uh so there's something there's something I mean both comical and violating and rescuing yeah, in this yeah. scene. I mean it's it's sort of it's not a very long scene, but it's but so much scene. happens in it. Yeah. It's mechanical. Yeah. It's like um, you know, it, it's it's like putting the accelerator to the floor or something. There's something yeah. a little mechanical about it, but it's touching. It's touching, you know, because of the way he tells the fighter to leave. Well, why does he tell him to leave? Why do you think? And why is the fighter just not surprised? He just <laughs> sings a little song and well, it feels says like you are good. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like it, it's it's woven into the um, nature of Native American experience, and it it ties a little in with the sort of um, 
taking the long road around to get to where you're going, which is a trope that goes through Native American literature. Um, it's like this, um, I'm going west, but first I'm going to go north and yeah. south and east, and, and I'm just going to wander mm-hmm. around. And, and maybe at some level, um, this might be pushing it, but maybe at some level the sex is just another form of wandering. Yeah. Um, you were good, and then they part ways in a way that is very not white. Yeah. They, you know, okay, goodbye. Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna <laughs> sit around and, and analyze this for the rest of my life, and and work it out. Uh, I'm just. This is. We we follow the path that that the world leads us through, um, and that's the way it is. It's a it's a different way of thinking, I think, than um, quote unquote whiteness would would project onto the scene. Yeah. Um, and it, maybe that mirrors a little bit Cindy too in that mm-hmm. scene. Um, with her like deliberateness of telling him what she likes and what she doesn't yeah. like, and and him falling asleep until and he him comes. falling asleep and yeah, exactly. <laughs> humping away in his sleep, yeah, um, because he's so bored. That's hard. To, I can't imagine how you could do that, but <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a story. It's symbolic. Um, there's this sort of amazing thing that happens though afterwards to our our narrator, who's energized, yeah, and and wound up by this and says, you know, maybe I'm a warrior, you know, yeah, yeah. which, you know, you would think actually it was, it was sort of, um, you would expect the opposite reaction that yeah. it was perhaps humiliating in some way, but it's not it, what he, he feels he's, he's been in a sense, he's had something essential passed into him. Yeah. I, again, I kind of read the, the masculine, the, this search for uh, masculine identity uh, looking for a way to think about being male mm-hmm. in, 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 in that character. Um, just trying to, and, and when you, when you come in contact with someone who is physically, you know, brutally into this sort of identity of manhood as a fighting yeah. kind of, um, scarred yeah. person, um, you're going to have, there's going to be a complex reaction. Yeah. Um, but even earlier, you know, he 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 really, in a way, misreads the fighter. You know, he tells yeah. a story about the boy that he he was hitting and hitting, and he just wouldn't fall down. And and finally, he you know sits down and gets counted out as a loser. Yeah. And and the narrator's like, oh, you would have been a killer. You know, <laughs> right. he, in fact, he just said, I didn't kill him. I chose not to. If I'd yeah. gone on hitting him, it would have killed him. He's shown himself to be compassionate. Yeah. Yeah. And and the narrator interprets this as a story of you know killing and stealing the goddamn horses and um, and is exultant yeah about it yeah yeah what do you think is happening with that well at some really it, maybe at some deep level really deep level uh, it's a critique of the sort of idea of war of being a warrior as mm-hmm. an answer Fighting. to malehood. Yeah. You, you feel like the fighter has thrown in the towel and said, no more of this for me. He's going home. Yeah. And yet the, 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 the main character, the narrator, it's more like he's trying to head in the, in the direction of the fighter. So they meet kind of halfway. Yeah. Um, um, and he feels better about himself at the end and, and more centered somehow. Obviously, mm-hmm. he's centered in this, with his tradition and yeah. with his people. He smells like salmon. He smells like salmon. And, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. 
But he starts, so he starts off the story in a way just living with ghosts, right? You know, he's living with the ghosts of his dogs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Felix and Oscar. He talks about how his, his dead siblings live in a converted apartment in the high school. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know? right. I mean, very, very local, very specific. Um, and then, you know, you have these ghosts of the salmon in the sky as constellations. And so then you get to the end, and and this fighter walks out the door and basically walks up into the sky and becomes one of them. Yeah. Uh, so he becomes a salmon. He becomes a ghost. Our narrator, inside him, are a thousand s- salmon skeletons. He's heading off to the place where he was born and where he'll die. Do you think he's literally going to the reservation? Do you think? What do you think is happening? I, I'm going to go back again to the thing that a short story can do that nothing else can do, which is ride that line between poetry and, and, a, yeah. and a longer fiction. It's part of what the story ends up being. You know, it's at some level, the texture of the story is about myth. So I just read it as a endpoint to the narrative. Throwing, again, throwing everything back on everything you read before you got to that point in the mystery of what happens between between the two people in the, in the hotel room, um, which is, a, I guess, a long-winded roundabout way of saying I have no, I- <laughs> no idea exactly what that ending really means. Um, yeah. You know, it's, uh, again, it allows you to become uh, integrated into a, a cultural moment and um, makes you think in a way that you, can't, you, you normally might not think. Um, I read a, an, an interview with Sherman, and it may have just been that he was irritated by the questions, but he, he sort of said quite directly, this is about a man grappling with his sexuality. It's not yeah. about yeah. him grappling with his identity, you yeah. know, and uh, which, which is, is totally, funny. <laughs> yeah. And totally true. It, it really but, is just a man grappling with his, you know. With his sexual and, identity. But, yeah. But he said in the, in the interview, one of the points I was trying to make in that story is that being Indian is just part of who we are. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but you do feel throughout the whole story this narrator reaching for his Indian. Yeah, I, Indianism. Yeah. <laughs> you can say it that way. Well, it's this. It's simply the miasma or the stuff around the action of the story. Mm-hmm. So, to me, the real important thing in the story, I agree with Sherman. I think I understand mm-hmm. what he's saying. Is the act? Is the things that happen between? The fighter and the main character, and, and what and and what happens to to them. Uh, in other words, um, both things are right. I mean, you can't just look at it as a uh, an attempt to be to sort of teach you something about the culture or to yeah. inform yeah. us about the Native American culture. Though so interestingly, there is a little bit of that quality there. There's a bit of the you're you, you're a Martian entering my world. You, know? <laughs> you didn't realize that Indians call each other cousin even when they're not related, or that yeah. <laughs> that yeah. there are Pepsi yeah. tribes and Coke tribes. So there's a slight touch of I'm I'm right. I know if you're reading this, you may not be. Yeah, you know, yeah. you may not know these things. Yeah, and the structure, the way it's built, does yeah. that too. Because you have a lot of for in the foreground, you have a lot of background about the father and the hitchhikers, and Indian hitchhikers are this. And um, the, fa- the 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 starting with the father is interesting, especially when Cindy says, "You know, I won't date white guys because they always talk about their dads." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and we've started this with him talking about his dad. Uh, there's another line where he says, "You know, living living with nostalgia is, is the most dangerous thing." Yeah. 
And that seems to be all he's living with, in a way. Yeah, it's really interesting. The 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 book version is slightly tweaked and mm-hmm. has some diff- a little more self awareness of his playing identity. So yeah. he, um, when the fighter gets in the car, he informs the reader that um, he intentionally uses certain words to to let the fighter know that he's native. He has he's part of the res. Yeah, he's yeah. more aware of playing. Uh, around Um, and that kind of shows the complexity of being between two worlds and how you have to navigate a lot Mm -hmm. um, to find to find your position Um, perhaps what he admires in the in the fighter is that he really is living in one world in a way he's not he's not torn between two he seems like it yes seems yes yeah I think I think Sherman Alexie said in an interview that he grew up Catholic and Native American, so he had guilt squared. <laughs> <laughs> Two levels of, of, of guilt. Well, um, there's another thing. The narrator keeps, he says, believe me, about five or six times in the story, you know, at different, different points. And just, you know, the most intense is I wanted him to save me, you know, believe me, I wanted him to save me. But he says it several other times. Yeah. Why are you... Why do you have to beg so hard <laughs> for us to believe you? You know, there's something perhaps he's not believing himself. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. I did. I. I didn't really think of that. There is this sort of uh, urgency to, uh, and uh, even when, of course, when he says, "I'm not gay," you know, it's like this urgent uh, desire to make sure you believe him and make sure you're part of his side of the story. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's very complicated. Yeah, very interesting <laughs> to think what what story the fighter would tell. <laughs> Picked up by this very confused young man. <laughs> I, I get a feeling the fighter wouldn't even remember this night, this day. It was right. just one more in a long line of many sort of random events. Random hitchhiking he... moments. And, of course, he's up in the sky anyway. Yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you. Sherman Alexie has published 25 books of poetry, short fiction, and novels, including The Lone Ranger and Tonto Fistfight in Heaven, War Dances, and most recently, the young adult novel The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian. David Means' books include the story collections The Spot and The Secret Goldfish, and the novel Histopia, which was longlisted for this year's Man Booker Prize. He's been publishing fiction in The New Yorker since 2004. You can download more than 100 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast in the iTunes Store. You can download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or audible.com. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazines read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. You can also hear readings of New Yorker Fiction on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps available from the App Store or from Google Play. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff and Alex Barron of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.